Back in 2021, we talked with Douglas Kent. He's the author of the book Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. In that chat, we discussed some of the same topics that you heard in our conversation with University of California Fire Advisor Luca Carmignani. That was in episode 235 of the Garden Basics podcast. So, would you please excuse maybe some of the same mentions? But Douglas Kent takes a different slant to the topic of protecting your home and landscape from a wildfire and is definitely worth a listen. By the way, Douglas Kent uses the term firebrand, which is just another name for a blowing, flaming ember. Back in 2020, about 4 million acres burned in California, a record at its time. The Sacramento Bee did an analysis that showed that most of the scorched land sits within what's called a very high fire hazard severity zone, areas designated by Cal Fire scientists as highly vulnerable to major wildfires. And there is a pattern to these maps. The Sacramento Bee analysis shows that more than 2.7 million Californians live in very high fire hazard zones. About 350,000 live in towns and cities that sit completely or almost completely within these zones. Well, uh, the story is much the same in other communities that have burned in recent years and in interviews with homeowners who have been affected by these fires. It's not uncommon to hear, we know there's going to be another wildfire. We just pray it's not in our backyard. Well, the thing is, uh, you better do more than pray. And by the way, it isn't just California. The tragedy is uh, hardly a, a crazy California thing, according to my next guest. Conflagrations are consuming more live structures and acres throughout the United States, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, Washington are setting records. And with a widespread drought, it's not going to get any better. And for that matter... It's overseas as well. We've seen the pictures of the wildfires in Australia, for example. We're talking with Douglas Kent. Doug Kent is the author of Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. Even though you do have plantless, suggested plantless, you point out that maintenance is key. Maintenance, cleanup is very important to suppress fires. Basic housekeeping is essential absolutely essential. It is the lack of our participation in the landscapes around our communities that welcome fire in. You know, in the Wolseley fire, um, what was that, 1,400 structures lost? Over 60% of those structures that were lost were burnt out by firebrands, not direct flame contact. And unofficial estimates say that 40% of those burnt from the inside out. Yeah. So that means that the firebrand penetrated the structure through the garage door, through an opening in the vent, through an open window, and ignited the, the structure from the inside out. Yeah, so really the structures are the place to start uh, if we want to create a, a, a fire-protected state or community. A lot of people use mulch. I, I talk about using mulch uh, because it, it is good for your plants. But it's not good if you have it uh, piled up right next to your house, especially if you've got uh, tall plants that are growing up right next to your house as well. No, you're exactly right, Fred. Uh, Grace Slick, who lived in Marin County, lost her house um, to gorilla mulch. She had completely redone her landscape, spread gorilla mulch all over the place, and county workers were working down below her property, caused a spark just raced up that mulch and consumed her house. You know, we have to be very 
cautious when we use mulch in fire country for sure. Yeah, gorilla mulch, also called gorilla hair, is the fine, thin hair bark that you might see at a uh, garden center or a big box store. And yeah. if you're going to use mulch, it'd be better to use uh, large mulch, medium mulch, or small mulch, but try to avoid that uh, gorilla hair. So let's get into what you talk about in the book, Firescaping. And one of them is, it's sort of like playing basketball. You need to establish a zone defense. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, there. sorry. That was really a great analogy. <laughs> You're exactly right. You know, the uh, the zone theory actually came out of the L.A. Arboretum in the 1970s, and it was a response to California's first major urban fire. That was the Bel Air Fire of 1961. Federal and state funding had roared into L.A. County, and, and massive amounts of work was being created to help create these fire-protected communities. And out came from that was the zone theory. And it's just three concentric zones around any structure. So the first zone is zone one, from the structure to 30 feet. The job of that zone is to endure intense heat and endure firebrands. And those firebrands may be raining on that zone for days or weeks. Further out from 31 to 70 feet is the fuel break. And this is where an, a fire, a ground fire or a canopy fire, is absolutely put out. So it doesn't go any further than 70 feet to a structure. And then from 71 to 100 feet or 200 feet out, depending on where you live, is zone three. And that's really about fuel modification. We're reducing the intensity of the fire. So those are the three zones. Reduce the intensity of the fire, stop the fire, and then make sure that that structure can endure the effects of the fire. When people have been reading about uh, these zones, and there is a lot of literature about them, uh, they sometimes walk away with the impression that zone one is nothing but uh, hardscaping. It's nothing but concrete. When in reality, uh, you, you could have a lawn. You can have anything. Japanese maples. You know, I've seen juniper survive a house fire just eight feet away. Anything that's well-maintained and loved and free of the fine, ignitable fuels is probably okay. It's really about the, the design and the massing. So if we have just this utter mass of plants, then your fire risk liability is going to increase. But if the landscape is open and broad and sweeping views – you are less likely to have that high risk. That's really about the design and the composition and the massing. And, and like you said before, about the maintenance is really the critical part. What I also found interesting, and you were talking about plants that are can offer some degree from wildfires. And you talked about the oleander, how in its early years, an oleander can suppress a fire. But as an oleander ages, it could actually turn into a liability. Right. And why is that? Well, just as anything ages, it becomes more brittle, less resilient, and it accumulates a lot of those fine materials and fine fuels inside of its canopy. So even the most fire-resistant plants, I've seen piles of ash. Every plant I've ever recommended, I think I've seen a pile of ash. <laughs> so it's really sometimes a little problematic to recommend any one plant. But I, I think one one good piece of advice, though, is, is don't have mulch right next to your house and don't have those uh, <laughs> those ladder plants right next to the house, too, where a fire can basically climb up the plant and get into your eaves. 
sage advice right there. Yes. Really, you don't want anything remotely flammable within five feet of a structure. Nothing remotely flammable. If a fire starts next to a structure, you get this effect called compression and convection. And so out in the wild, a three-foot flame all of a sudden turns to six or seven or eight feet when it's right up against a vertical surface like a building because you get that compression of the radiant heat and then that rapid convection, which elongates the flames. So, yes, no mulch up against the house. No woody material or, or even the more flammable plants like rosemary and, and cypress. Um, anything with a dense, twiggy interior would never be recommended. That, that would be like a, um, a hedge. Any of those would not be recommended. No, you nailed it right there, Fred. Well, when you said sage advice, I'm thinking I wouldn't plant a sage either because it is is so aromatic. And you point out in your book that the aromatic plants contain a lot of oils and that that can add flame to the fire. Yeah, but if we had plants like maybe like coral bells or agapanthus, daylilies, there's so many neat plants. Uh, Japanese maples would be ideal in that first zone or even close to a structure. Succulents, you know, um, the sedum and the agaves would all be wonderful. And let's talk about uh, some of the things that people have near their house that maybe they should think twice about. When I lived in the country, a lot of people liked to line their driveways with trees on either side, and they were usually... Uh, usually fast-growing trees, and fast-growing trees usually aren't your best quality trees. But if you stop and think about it, well, wait a minute. If the driveway catches fire and those trees catch fire, how is the fire department going to get to the house? Well, they're not. They're not. Yeah, they're not going to risk their life for a property that's poorly maintained. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they they can spot that a mile away. And that yep. is something else that, that that's kind of sad. There hasn't been, as you point out in your book, that much enforcement of of cleanup, of mitigating these possible issues. Right. Well, you know, part of that is the personality the fire departments attract. They don't attract people interested in compliance. Those people go to police work. So you're trying to get the fire departments to do a a policing job, and it really kind of goes against the grain of their personality. So I think it's a structural issue. Um, I think it's a job they don't want. Um, You know, they don't want to be the bad guy in the neighborhood. Fred, I'm going to back up. You know, compliance with state fire code ranges from 8% to 30% throughout California. Actually, a fire-safe property is more of an exception than a rule. And so you really need enforcement when compliance is so low. Well, there is some problems, though. You know, California is second in the nation in levels of renters. So we Mm. have an incredible high population that rents. And you're going to find that. That was the Paradise Fire. Most of the structures destroyed were rentals. We saw a lot of rentals get destroyed in the Tubbs Fire. The managers of these rentals are are not as invested in the safety and and the well-being of their community and the neighbors. Because really, when you do a fire safe property, you're not just protecting your family and your valuables, you're protecting everybody around you. And, you know, if you're just a renter or you're a landlord, you're less likely to feel attached to your neighbors or your community. And I think that plays a role, too, in our level of housekeeping in fire country. One thing I learned from your book, and this will be reassuring to gardeners, is that food crops, your garden area, is can survive fire brands and intense heat. And food is phenomenal. Food has been saving Californians for hundreds of years. Not one 
California mission was ever destroyed by a wildfire. The only mission ever destroyed by a fire was a an uprising, and that was San Diego. No, the, the missionaries had it right. You can see it in their architecture, and you can see it on their use of their land. Immediately around the structures, their churches would have been food crops, would have been husbandry, animal husbandry, would have been tanning. And all the uses in that high use around the outside of their structures would have created a low degree of flammability and ignitability. Yeah, I guess really the problem with some garden features, even in a food garden, would be the structures around it, the uh, play structures, shade structures, storage sheds, the wood pile. Maybe we better think about uh, constructing uh, raised beds out of metal instead of uh, wood. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Actually, I don't know if raised beds are such a risk because um, they absorb the soil moisture. So they, they usually have a higher water content than wood that's just been laying out. But no, structures pose a disproportional risk. So shade structures, playhouses, um, even RVs are notorious fire starter. Mm. Yeah, once an RV gets going... They'll produce incredible amounts of heat and exceptionally tough to extinguish. Well, that brings up a really good question then, and this would affect a lot more homeowners. Where should a homeowner, if they think they are in a wildfire area, and my heavens, that thought is expanding to more and more areas, yeah. but where, mm -hmm. where do you put the woodpile? Where do you park the RV? How far away from the home should those be? Well, the wood, the wood pile should be at least 10 feet off the house, no doubt about it. A fire professional would always recommend 30 feet, but no less than 10 feet. And the RV can be maintained so it just doesn't catch the firebrand. So if you sweep underneath it, you make sure no fine debris is accumulating in the tire wells or in the gutters or on the roof, then you should be fine. Firebrands will just hit the RV and bounce off. How about fuel tanks? What well, propane tanks, for example, how far should those be away from a home? Oh, okay. So those, I think, um, state law requires, I think, 60 feet from a structure and that they themselves need at least 20 feet of defensible space around them and five feet of non-flammable material like gravel immediately around them. Well, that will come as a surprise to most people who have a lot of junk usually piled up by the propane tank. Yes, common in fire country to see the propane tank being used as storage. So there's all kinds of stuff leaning on it, mm -hmm. hanging around it. Yeah, it's tragic. Oh, and weeds, and it, too. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, state law requires all those wild weeds to be mowed down to four inches around um, natural gas tanks or propane tanks, and, and that's a rarity. And if you've ever heard one of those explode, they are bone-shattering. Well, I, I think in summary, we should point out that uh, in all zones, removing dead, diseased and damaged vegetation is the most important use of your time spent uh, in maintenance. Now, Fred, you nailed it. If I could tell your audience anything, it would be get rid of those fine fuels. Just make sure that your landscape and your house can survive that fire brand attack. And it all comes down to those fine fuels. Is there anything for a firebrand to ignite in your gutter, next to your door, out into the landscape? So, yes, remove that dead, dying, and diseased vegetation. That's our number one task. There are a lot of good tips we don't have time to go into uh, here in the book, Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. 
And it includes things like uh, maybe how to better protect your home with roof sprinklers or generators or putting your swimming pool to use for for good, Uh, dealing with slopes, having an evacuation route, and, and so much more that's in this book, Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire Resistant Landscape by Douglas Kent. Doug, thanks for all the good tips. Is there anything you want to add to this? I would just like to add that I am super grateful to be on a gardening program. I think gardeners are divine. Our impact on our communities is fantastic. And I would just love to do anything to encourage you and your your listeners to continue to garden joyfully. It's just a wonderful, divine pursuit. And gardeners are the nicest people, too. They Indeed, they are. All right. Douglas Kent, he's author of the book, Firescaping, Protect Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. If you know people who, who live in that urban wildland interface and you visited their homes and you think, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen here if a fire breaks out? Let them know about this podcast. Have them give it a listen and then pick up a copy of Douglas Kent's book, Firescaping. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, Fred, you are a delight. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on your show.